Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com You're listening to a podcast from The Word. So this week, I witnessed something I have never witnessed before in all my, in all my rock history. Mark. My born days. Um, it took place on Friday, Friday lunchtime. I went to Ronnie Scott's in London, Soho, where there was... Uh, a kind of reception and playback. Playback is always an expression. I don't know about you that sends a chill down my down well, my spine. Well, it sends spice. a chill if the person who was responsible for making the record is in the room because there you go. So, it's so <laughs> difficult to respond when you're hearing something for the first time. You know. Uh, anyway, it's a playback of the the upcoming record by Elvis Costello, and I went to produce my vaccination certificate at the door and all that kind of carry on. And, uh, you know, went through quite a number of people there. And um, well, quite a lot of people, actually, instead of industry people, as you'd expect. And then a bunch of kind of hardcore Elvis Costello fans, I think, were there. And um, the, the the MC of proceedings was Matt Everett. He's very good at this kind of thing, and you know, and you know, made enthusiastic noises about the new Elvis Costello album. And said, so "We're going to play five tracks, and you know what it's going to be like when you're going to have to listen to five tracks in the presence of a record company, and there's a room full of people. They're going to play. They're going to start off playing it really loud." And then all the people of the record company sort of nodding, nodding furiously, yeah, clicking fingers, and whatever it is, this is just (laughs) the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. As if they're ever going to convince anybody else that you know, people people come to music in their own time, you know. Anyway, Uh, and also what they'll do is, however loud the first track is, it won't be as loud as the second track, and it won't be neither will be as loud as the third track because what happens as soon as they feel anybody's attention is wandering in any way they turn it up louder. It's just one of those things. So after a while, it kind of distorts. You think this is sort of oppressive noise. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter what it is. There's no reflection on the music. It's just the fake circumstances of listening to anything in those conditions. Anyway, they play the five tracks. 
And then he introduces Elvis Costello, who's going to come out and talk. And Elvis comes out, and I have to say, first of all, I was relieved in one aspect of his personal appearance. Now, I don't know where you stand on this, but I was very relieved that Elvis Costello was not wearing a hat because I find his hat wearing slightly distracting. Do you feel the same way? Yes. Trying slightly too hard. Yeah, it doesn't seem like him anymore. And also wearing hats indoors. Yes. uh, It just just seems, well, there's a reason it's happening. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Anyway, so I was very pleased to see that he came on without the hat and he, you know, sat on a stool. and, uh, And I think Matt Everett pretty much only got away one question. And, you know, we've all been in Matt Everett's shoes at those kind of things. You, know, you want people to talk. You don't want them to talk too much or you don't want them to get boring. You know, you want to move them on topic to topic. But anyway, he said, well, you must know this place pretty well, Ronnie Scott, you know. And Elvis just started. He said, and he just pointed at different tables. He said, yeah, I sat there to see Ray Brown in, you know, whatever it was, 1984 or whatever. I sat over there with so-and-so to see somebody else. And he, and he just recounted. That's really such a clever device, isn't it? Such a clever It just it, nails your attention and makes you feel this happened right here. You're all absolutely. looking around to see, wow, I imagine that. And so you immediately relax because you think, I'm in the hands of a communicator. You know what I mean? And and then he just he just continued. And he talked for the best part of 45 minutes incredible and this is with no notes nothing no notes nothing at all this is what makes it unique in my experience of rock stars he talked 44 45 minutes in a completely absorbing free-ranging colorful funny perceptive fashion didn't need any help at all there was no hesitation. There was no deviation. There was no repetition, as they say. On was it just a minute? We say yeah. that, like, yeah. There was. I thought after a while, after about ten minutes, I thought to myself, "My God, he hasn't even said er uh, or um." There was none of those natural conversational yeah. hesitations. He just moved on from one thing to another, and. I don't think it was particularly, I mean, some of it may have been stuff he said on stage before, I don't know. And and some of it may be as a consequence of spending, you know, two best part of two years at home. So he, lots of stuff is stored up, you know. But he talked about how he'd last been in the UK, I think, in the days just before lockdown. They'd been on tour, hadn't they, in the UK? Yeah. He'd gone to Anfield to see Liverpool play Atletico Madrid. He'd begun to notice. Which was the famous gig where they thought that uh, coronavirus was imported from, from Italy. Because they were not from Spain. Sorry, from Spain. That's right. Sorry, yeah. Uh, 5,000 Atletico supporters, you know. And um, But he'd begun to notice on that tour that sold-out houses weren't full and that some people weren't coming out. And when, and, and when they played the final show, at um, at the Albert Hall, he, he joked about finishing with a, a song called uh, Hurry on Doomsday, the Bugs Are Taking Over. You know what I mean? It was a kind of joke. <laughs> yeah. and, but then they'd all gone home, and it clearly wasn't a joke, you know, because they had to stay at home. And so everybody was quite happy at home for a couple of months. And then Pete Thomas got in touch with him and said that he drummed along. 
He drummed along to the entire Stax and Motown and Beatles catalogues. Fantastic. And didn't, decided nothing else was worth drumming what along to. What a wonderful to. thing to do, to get up in the morning and that sit at your drums and bang on kind of hard days and nights. Oh, reach that. out and I'll Wonderful. be there. Or, yeah, I've got yeah, absolutely yeah, everything. Yeah. And so he'd done all that. And so it was kind of a, a little bit of a loose end. So they, they started recording and they started recording remotely with Elvis doing doing songs and then sending them to Pete Thomas, Pete Thomas putting drum parts on them and then sending them to the bass player and putting bass on and then sending them to Stephen Bave, who then goes... There's no room here for me to put anything on, you know, because he talked about recording remotely and uh, and how that was different. And he talked about the things that were good about it and the things that weren't. He then talked about, I mean, it's just stuff I can recall. He talked about his old teachers, his old school teachers in Hounslow. He talked about oh, so how the band yeah. got told off for not miming properly on top of the pops once. <laughs> he told he talks about how the man who bought the image rights for Laurel and Hardy. I never knew any of this stuff at all. He talked about David Hockney painting with an iPad. He talks about what a thrill it is when you get your first TikTok hit. He talked about this album, Spanish Model, which is this year's model done by yep. loads of Spanish performers. And he talked about how he didn't want his next record to be just what he called another bucket of herring topped, tossed into the stream, which was, you know, his way of referring to Spotify or the ways that music yeah. is, is disseminated. And he just, he just, he must have talked for about half an hour. He was incredibly colorful, incredibly illuminating. And I think Matt Ever at that point said, I think we have some questions from fans. And he read out one from somebody who was in the audience. I've got a 25-minute response. Asking Elvis <laughs> how he felt to do the Royal Variety performance, because he'd done this apparently this week or something. And, and then he talked about how his father had done the Royal Variety performance. And then he talked about how it was 10 years since his father had died and how in his last days he had to go and find him a room a place at a care home for their entertainers in West London, and how some of the rooms were named after people who had donated towards the, the care home, and how he really didn't want his father ending up in the Bernard Manning, no, <laughs> Manning room. A care home for entertainers. Well, yeah, there, there's, there's quite common. I mean, you'll, you'll find that, you know, there's, like, there's homes for retired actors and variety of artists. What a lovely and, idea. And, well, there always has been, and, you know, because traditionally, uh, and this stuff was very much... Started, you know, a hundred years ago, wasn't it? Lost this because musicians traditionally traditionally made no um, arrangements for their retirement whatsoever, yeah. yeah, and very often were ill and so forth. So there's always been those kind of places. Um, but you know, in the end, he said, and what his message was at the end, he said he refused to dwell on the pandemic. And we've all got to get on, get on, got to be positive and get on with life because we're all going to die. And then he pointed out a couple of people in the audience, and you're going to die. <laughs> and, <you're> gonna... <laughs> and honestly, I've, I've never heard anything like it. And, you know, and I've, you know, there are a handful of musicians who are good talkers, but they're not that kind of good talker. You know, Bruce Springsteen, people like that, they're very good talkers, but they're ramblers. Elvis Costello was not. He was he was like a teacher, you know, and he talked for 40 minutes. I mean, think of that. It's a lot. 40 minutes, I think, is the kind of, it's the magic 
duration for a thing of that nature. Because it's like a school lesson is 40 minutes, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And that's about the amount of time that the speaker can be expected to sustain it and about the amount of time the audience can be expected to tolerate it. Yeah. You can't go any further than that. And he just had those kind of simple techniques of communication. And you just thought, this is absolutely unique. It's exceptional. And I tweeted about this, and I said how exceptional it was. People said, well, he's a wordsmith. Listen, there's loads of people who are wordsmiths. Yeah, but they can't get up and talk. Can't do that. Can't get anywhere near doing that. That's not just command of words. That's, That's communication. But also, he notices everything. Do you remember yeah. that? Do you remember that piece in Vanity Fair in two thousand when he talked about the five hundred best albums of all time, and the the richness of his record collection, which contributes to why the, the music he makes himself is so colourful and varied. You know, he talked about Cannonball Adderley and Beethoven and Salt and Pepper, Flying Burritos, Georgie Fame, The Heptones, Dan Hicks, in as much detail. I mean, extraordinary. I interviewed him, uh, well, I mean, you, we both interviewed him a few times, and his just ability to pinpoint things. I can remember him ask, asking him about what the greatest line, opening line in, in pop music was. And he said, uh, he said he had two. One was, is there anybody going to listen to my story all about the girl who came to stay? Which is good, isn't it? Yeah. And the other is, in the time of my confession, in the hour of my, my deepest need. From every grain of sand. And then he said that there are only five subjects that people broadly wrote songs about. And they were, I want someone, I lost someone, I believe in something, somebody died, and all I want for Christmas is a Duke of Prague awakened. <laughs> really kind of novelty. It was really clever. It's just his, his ability to kind of uh, to assess precisely what's going on and, uh, and, and, and talk about it in that kind of colourful, interesting way is phenomenal. The Word Podcast, prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. And another thing about Elvis Costello, (laughs) which has just struck me during the break, is it's so much about the energy of delivery. Because 99% of rock stars, when placed in front of an audience and expected to talk, will be exaggeratedly relaxed to cover their nervousness. They will be kind of incoherent. They will appear to be grasping for words and whatever. Whereas Elvis wasn't like that at all. He was completely towards you. He was full of energy. He was welcoming. He was smiling. All those things that people just don't do. But also a lot of them don't make the effort because they're assuming that they've got your attention already because they are who they are, which is completely wrong. Yeah. You know, you've got to attack it, haven't you? You've got to go in there on the front foot. Whereas he, he got on that stage at Ronnie's Scott's because he really wanted to be there. Yeah. It wasn't a chore. He wanted to be there. And he wanted to talk about his record. And he just wanted to talk. And that's a, and as soon as people want to do that, the audience, whoever they are, are delighted. Riveted. Whereas, you know, if you sit there and kind of expect everybody to come to you, they won't come to you. No. Anyway. So... The two of us went out earlier in the week, didn't we? We uh, did. Well, so it turned out that what we saw, I guess, was what we could call the world premiere, really, for the Get Back, the Peter Jackson Get Back movie. And we could call it that, couldn't we? I mean, we it was could. a screening, but I mean, you know, the turnout, the lots of the Beatles' extended family represented, Darnie Harrison, uh, Zach Starkey, Stella McCartney, Mary McCartney, Patty Boyd, um, and lots of and Glyn Johns and uh, and various 
Beatle obsessed musicians, Elvis Costello again, wasn't he? He was there. Chrissy Hind, Graham. Oh, was Elvis there? I didn't see Elvis him. was there. Yes, he oh, was. Right. Yeah, yeah, he was. And lots of Beatle fetishists, like people like us, actually. Yeah, and yeah. Professor Brian Cox and Martin Freeman and stuff. But it was a kind of one-off event, wasn't it? Really, because it, you can't show the entire six-hour movie. Obviously, you it's can't more than that. six hours. It's it? more than six hours, isn't it? Um, so what we got was a 100-minute kind of edit, which mm. included uh, a filmed interview with Peter Jackson, introducing it and talking about, you know, how he'd come to make it, which was really, really interesting. Was it? The technical stuff it was, was fantastically interesting. Because it was classic case nowadays. When they, it, it, so, it was so, it's such an indication of how things have changed, is that if you're, if you're doing anything nowadays, if you're making a movie, you simultaneously have to shoot the footage for the behind-the-scenes film of making yeah, the movie, the doc which will inevitably yeah. come. And so one of the lovely touches in this was that you saw uh, Jonathan Clyde of, of Apple taking Peter Jackson down into, literally, into the vault I think it was Vault 3, it wasn't was it? Vault like, 3, it was vault on the door, three. that's right. <laughs> and you just opened this kind of you know, heavy, blast-proof door. And behind there were just these stacked cans of film, hundreds of them. And uh, what was the story of those tapes? I think there were 560 quarter-inch tapes, but a lot of them were still... Well, that's all, they? that's all, yeah. It's okay, it's, it's a complicated story, and I only know, know bits of it. I mean, there's however many hours of of footage of a film and then there's way more hours of audio because you know they had nagra uh tape recorders reel-to-reel tape recorders yeah. such as they were used on documentaries back in those days and and that those will be running all the time you know so during rehearsals during tea yeah. breaks during anything they were just constantly running and so there's hundreds of hours of those and Loads of those disappeared, they didn't were, they? I think that they were stolen by somebody who worked at Apple and flogged to some music collector in, in Amsterdam or something. Was it? They only recently recovered in like 2005 or something. Well, they, they got a call out the blue. I think this is what started this whole project, that Apple got a call out the blue saying somebody had got them. Yeah. And I don't, I don't believe they had to pay any ransom or anything like that. I think they were just returning. But it, it's, it's only when you... Um, you know, you have the um, the audio together with the with the film that you can you can start thinking about doing anything like like Peter Jackson has subsequently done. So it was great to see see and that. Also, bit. to see the bit where he talked about the again the technicalities. He showed bits of footage of what it was like visually before mm. they repaired it because it was originally just the old sixteen millimeter blown up, and then they played bits of audio, didn't they? After they were, and the difference was absolutely unbelievable because the original Let It Be was very grainy, wasn't it? You saw it in, fact, in that very oh, cinema. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I saw it in the cinema on that site. They, um, they, yes, it was very grainy because it was. Uh, I think we talked about this recently. That, that it was originally sixteen millimeter, and because yeah. it was going, it was going to be for telly. And then halfway through, they thought, no, it's not for telly, it's for, the, for cinema. Therefore, they blew it up. And, and you just lose you lose a lot of definition when you do that. Whereas nowadays, there is a technology to scan that stuff in in a very different fashion. And so it uh, it, it looks very different. Um, and, uh, you know, what can we say? What can we say about what we We can saw? say that that was an amazingly creative period for the Beatles, wasn't it? If you think about it, my God. 
Yes. You know, that that last Hannity time off of the, well, in 66, was it after Revolver? And they came it's back just run, did, It's just running through this. Run, run through it. Yeah, it was a run, 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 so, so, and, right, let's go back. They stopped touring in 1966, don't they? So yep. they stop at Candlestick Park in, in San Francisco, which must be late summer 66. It was. Is it? Yeah. Late summer 66. So they come back. They must have had some kind of holiday or whatever. But anyway, they start in the studio, late 66, working towards the stuff that will be Sergeant Pepper. Yes? Yep. And so Single Penny, in Lane, February. Penny Lane is from Strawberry Fields, comes out in February. Okay. And then they carry on. They they Sergeant Pepper comes out in June. Straight right? into Magical Mystery Tour. Straight comes out. Now, hang on a second. No, hold on. <laughs> in June, comes out in June. By which time they probably met the Maharishi. Yes. Yep. They go to Bangor to meditate with the Maharishi. Died. Brian Epstein dies. They then go and make magical mystery tour. They have the idea of and go and make and put out on Boxing Day that year magical mystery tour. A film tour. and a WP. <laughs> and, yes. And then. Straight to India. Pretty so much. Straight to India. In they write the whole, pretty much the whole of the, the White, White Album. <laughs> they, they come back and, and make demos at George's house, don't they? And if you hear those demos, it's, it's extraordinary to hear how much of it was just in place at yeah, that point. Yeah. And then they, you know, they they go and uh, make the White Album. John goes off to his. Does John have his accident then in 1968? Or no, he has it He has it when they're recording at 69 when they're recording, uh, recording the Abbey Road, Road I think, Abbey actually. But yeah, but anyway, they record, they record all that. And um, the White Album comes out, goes to number one, and the White Album is still at number one on the 3rd of January 1969 when they convene in Twickenham Film Studios. To start but, making but again the intense creative kind of fervor is astonishing because they got no yeah. songs they wrote in that what I mean was it three or four weeks they wrote fourteen songs for Let It Be we hear them uh, we saw little extracts uh, from what we saw the other night of them playing um, Octopus's Garden Oh Darling Maxwell Silverhammer something Her Majesty uh, Child of Nature which became yeah. Jealous Guy yeah. um, Give Me Some Truth yeah. I mean stuff that finished up on the solo arms half of Abbey Road all of that is written in that period which is fantastic isn't yeah. it? Yeah Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom like Evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds Salads generally for most people are the easy button right? For me that wasn't an option I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. 
Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I, told, I, I think I told you, I talked to Giles Martin about this and he said you know his his dad always used to say it's you know the amazing thing about the beatles is they kept it going for so long not that they didn't keep going any longer yeah because that pay the the quality of what they did was completely it was bound up with the pace at which they did things you know if they had two years to think about it they wouldn't have wouldn't have done it in the same way you know it's the speed of it is speed and the sense of competition yeah. And also, the feeling you get watching like that, like that footage was, was it's the fact it's the four of them together yeah. in the same room, which is the most valuable thing. That they're constantly looking for the other's contributions yeah. Yeah. to the way these songs can be arranged. And when you hear the original versions of them and then compare them with the thing that they eventually released, you know, the, the complexity and the, uh, the arrangements, the, the way they've changed it is, is absolutely phenomenal, I think. And isn't it interesting also that, you know, there's no footage of any groups really around that, very little footage. And here we are, the greatest group, producing some of their greatest material, filmed 52 years ago, shot for hours and hours and hours, for days on end, with five different cameras. Absolutely astonishing. We quite liked it. We did. This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. Any other business? We are joined. He's back on dry land, ladies and gentlemen. Alex Gold. Home Hello. is the sailor. Home from the sea. Yes. After, after three months after being... three months on the ocean wave. Our mop-top Matalow returns. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pointing that on my email signature. <laughs> I love the idea, Magic, that you came, You were there for three months dressing up as John Lennon uh, most nights and, and, and performing and then flew back yesterday and went straight into a gig as Ian McLagan of the Small Faces at the Half Moon in Putney. Yeah, it, got, it was a bit confusing. Actually. I had to stop myself from doing the, the John Bob when I was playing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm just the into, into, into bobbing. Yes. Um, but, uh, yeah, made it. It was, it was a heck of a day. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I survived, and I'm still here. And and uh, there are no more gigs for me for the rest of the year. I'm, I'm taking the rest. I'm taking the rest of the year off, which is something I've never been able to say before. So I'm quite happy with that. Good for you. Brilliant. So, um, questions from the massive or observations, agenda items. Gary Warren um, suggested he'd been listening to Dire Straits making movies, and he decided the whole of the first side was wonderful and the rest of it was just not worth listening to, to at all. Which and is he, true of quite a lot of records, isn't it? And, yeah, that yeah. led to a, a heated debate about, about records. about A free and frank exchange of views. You, you could say the same thing. And so I asked, you know, other people to, to chip in. Actually, Danny Baker to talk us by Emerson Lake Palmer, with which I'm not particularly I'm familiar. I'm not familiar enough it's, to know. It's apparently the same right. It's apparently the same thing. Robin Knight says combat rock by the clash. Um, is that is that the case? Um, you know, it's it's you know, if you buy on it, yeah, combat we'd be a rock the casbar and so forth. Tommy it? Gun and stuff like that. Should I stay or should I go is on rock yeah, is on, yeah, it's yeah. on combat rock and uh, and all that. You know, uh, Phil Kinderman says, How many people listen to uh, well, oh 
but he was talking about metal by Pink Floyd. He was saying the other way around. Other way around. One of these days, though, the opening track on the first side, fantastic. Right. Jim Slade says side one of television, television's marquee moon, and then and then you can stop after there. Is that is that the case? I think that's probably fair. But then again, there are, there are various records that just as a whole concept seem to work, don't they? It's like someone was saying Moon Dance. There was only the first half standing good, which is a amazing record. You have to listen to the whole thing from front to from start to finish. But also no, because you've got Come Running and these dreams of you on the on the second side. I tell you one good example. A really good example of an absolutely amazingly front-loaded record, which is Live Peace in Toronto by the Plastic Ono Band. First side is Blue Suede Shoes, Money, Dizzy Miss Lizzie, Your Blues, Can't Give Peace a Chance. The B-side is two extracts of of, uh, Yoko Ono, how can I put it kindly, kind of caterwauling, (laughs) improvisational screaming. One is a track called John John, which lasts 12 minutes. So I imagine the second side of that hasn't been played very much. Pretzel Logic. Pretzel Logic, Ricky Don't Lose That Number, Night by Night, Any Major Do, Barrytown, East St. Louis, uh, Toodaloo. That's oh, a fantastic opening It's side. fantastic side, but all right. What's on the second side? Uh, Through with Buzz. Monkey in Your Soul. It's not Monkey. as good. It does. It it's not as I'll good. I'll tell you a really good example of one that is very front-loaded, actually, which is Let's Dance by Bowie. Because you've got oh, God, yeah. China Girl, Let's Dance Without You. And then, and then the rest. Ricochet. Uh, criminal world, isn't it? Cat people, you know, it's just that that tails off badly. See, but if you're making a if you're making an LP record, presumably, if you come up with one hit, you know, it's something that sounds really good, you think we're, we're we're on our way. If you come up with two, you think we're more than on our way. Yeah. If you come up with three, you think we've finished. Yeah. You know, any old rubbish. Bring on the filler. Bring on the bass that player's the, track. The, the police's method, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can put absolutely anything there as long as you as long as you've got those uh, those main uh, you know props to hold up hold up the tent. And um, and as, as it got even more like this in the days of CD, didn't it? Because you didn't have sides. Yeah, and so the hits tended to be you know moved towards the front of the, the yeah. thing you know because the record company had a part in the sequencing and so forth although there are odd exceptions although it's not quite a cd era we have talked about this before that don't you want me by the human league is the final track on dare and it was the hit yeah <laughs> and it was final track because phil Oakey didn't want it on the record he didn't the want it on the record didn't really rate it and didn't think it was going to be commercial so <laughs> astonishing it's absolutely but various other Joshua Tree, another good example. That's all all front loaded, isn't it? And that uh, was famously sequenced by Kirsty McCall, wasn't it? Who did it and did it on the basis she chose the track she liked best first, the next best second, the next best third, and so forth. So if you if you're on the last bit of the Joshua Tree, she didn't approve of you too much. <laughs> you're not you're not the big finish. You're just you know you're just you're just filler. You know. Um, so what was the other thing that, uh, the other hot topic was, uh, this Danny Baker, wasn't it? That, um, people who had a really good first album. Oh, with, with a terrible follow-up. Yeah. Terrible follow-up. Oh, lots of obvious ones. There. The Stone Roses and Frankie Goes to Hollywood, hardly worth mentioning. Terence Trent Darby. Do you remember that? I remember yes. that when I was at Q. He was the hottest ticket in town. And then he wasn't. Oh my Lord. Introducing the hardline according to Terence Trent Darby. And then he put out a record called Neither Fish, Fish Nor, Nor Flesh. Flesh. Which was, I mean, A is the worst uh, album title imaginable, and B was simply frightful, ended his career. I tell you what's a really funny one, and it's a very, it's an earlier one, and it's very different. 
The first Rolling Stones album is brilliant, and it's all cover versions of rhythm and blues classics. The second Rolling Stones album is cover versions of of R&B classics done by entirely the same band, entirely the same producer, entirely the same way. It's rubbish. Oh, it's you see, Roy Scarsley got um, their second Don't catch st- me off the hook. Is that on there? Or come no, on? I wouldn't have thought so. I don't think Stone off the hook. Stone off the hook came out came out as a B side in the UK. Oh right, okay. Um, it's got everybody needs somebody's love and so. Oh yeah, yeah. And Susie Q, I think, is on there. And Down Home Girl. There's the old decent yeah. track, but it just it just shows how some records have just got magic, and yeah, other re- other records haven't, and they could be done by entirely the same people. What about you? Oh, one really good example. Would it be controversial to suggest that the the second Beatles album, by comparison to Please Please Me, is a bit rubbish? No, no, second Beatles album. You've been with Alex. Where are you staying? Their first album. Got to come round there and punch you. That's just absolutely genius. With the Beatles, is way better record than Please Please Me. All the cover versions of it. It's got Twist and Shout on it, isn't it? No, no. It's got. It's got. Um, it's got. It won't be long. It's got Rell over Beethoven. Yeah. It's got Please, Mr. Postman. You really got a hold on me, money. It's fantastic. Um, it's got Hold Me Tight. It's uh, all, all my sale, loving. This is Beatles for Sale, right? No, 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 no. no. I got my chronology wrong. I I know, Beatles for Sale is is, is the their fourth least album good record. Yeah, that's the one with all the covers on it. Right, let's oh, go good. through this, Alex. First one's Please Please Me. Yeah. Second one's with the Beatles. Yeah. Third one's Hard Days Night. Fourth one is Beatles for Sale. Is that right, Mark? Yeah, absolutely right. No, no, it's not. Is it really? It is. is. Now, I know you You youngsters. You heard it here first on this podcast. (laughs) I know you youngsters think (laughs) the Beatles are yours. But, you know, Mark and I still have some say in this on account of us having been there. No, no. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm just uh, I'm kind of disappointed in myself having been inside the Beatles for three months. And, uh, <laughs> don't, don't worry. Low, don't worry. So it's time. I'll give you a few really more. Right? Go give you on. A few more. Tracy Chapman. Tracy oh, Chapman's God. first album, which is the brilliant one with uh, talking about Revolution and Fast Car on it. Second album, I, th- I don't think anyone can remember a single track on it. It's called Crossroads, isn't it? Was it called Crossroads? Yes, What's it was. It? Crossroads. Well remembered. It's called Crossroads. Um... Uh, the story after New Boots and Panties was Do It Yourself, which is which got I like a couple of good tracks. It's got oh, I like it, and uh, this is what we find. This but is what we find that which is a good song, but otherwise, nowhere near as good. Well, I don't know, I it's not as good. It, it did know, I mean, but New Boots and Panties is a completely unique record, incredible, record. and therefore. You couldn't, you couldn't retain that impact yeah. again, could you? Yeah. Couldn't be done. But I uh, really like do it yourself. An absolutely corking example, I think, is is Lexicon of Love by ABC was followed by Beauty Stab. Yeah, and it really went quiet at that point, didn't it? Because you know, I mean, how could you follow Lexicon of Love? Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. in every respect. Yeah, yeah. So, and Magic might also back me up on here. I can't really remember it, but I think the second Arctic Monkeys wasn't that thrilling, whereas the first one was. Uh, no, it wasn't. The, third one, the first one was amazing. The second yeah. was kind of more of the same, but just not yeah. as good. Same with the Strokes. Um, the first album was astonishing, and it had all of the hype behind it. And the second one couldn't possibly yeah. live up to what p- people would have wanted it to be. So, um, yeah, curse of the indie second album. Okay, any other business? Anything else we've got to talk about? If you'd like to be a Patreon supporter, we wouldn't turn you away, would we? <laughs> um, and if you want to find out more about how to be a 
Patreon supporter, go to patreon.com slash word in your ear. Is that like is that right, Alex? Indeed, correct. Uh, yeah. And uh, you know, if you're a Patreon supporter at a certain level, you might even get the uh, get the uh, dubious pleasure of Mark Allen and I shinning down your digital drain pipe to, to rifle mark, through your record collection. To mark your uh, your birthday by um, by going through your record collection. We had some good ones recently, haven't we? Some very, very, really, very really entertaining, fantastic, very entertaining contributions with amazing records. Oh, oh, I know what I thought I was going to talk about this week, actually. And um, the snobbery of people who work in record shops, sure, <laughs> which I'm a bit of an expert in because you know I've been one of those snobs, yeah. and, you know. And I um, I don't know if you can see this record. I, I when you and I went round to Brent Hansen's uh, a few weeks ago, and he was playing, he was testing his new his new hi-fi, which costs more than your house, um, with a, with a, an all net Coleman record called the Jazz, the Shape of Jazz to Come. And I thought I must get that, and so I went in uh, to a jazz shop in Charing Cross Road. Uh, well, a, a little jazz shop within Voiles. Sorry, I'd rather give them away this guy. <laughs> we can, we'll be I'm able gonna, to track him down now. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not going to give him a hard time. But I don't know. What, what, what day does he work on? <laughs> What's he look like? Yeah, yeah go on. <laughs> so, it's only a record job. There's only one guy. And uh, I'd been in there, and I, I there was there was nobody in there, and I was just I was trying to find Ornette Coleman there, and they've got sections, you know, there's Miles Davis, there's Charlie Parker, there's you know, all the jazz there, and I'm going through, I can't see an Ornette Coleman section, I can't, there's a C section, but he's not in there, and I'm looking, and I was, I kind of pride myself, how you worked in record shops, and having spent half my life in record shops. I can find most things in record shops, you know. And so eventually he, t- he turned up the guys at the counter. And I, I went I went towards him, and I always say the same thing. It's no doubt me being stupid, but I can't see where your all-neck Coleman CDs are. And it, <laughs> he looked at me, and, be- and before he spoke, there was that flicker in his eyes that you get from record store staff when they're just asserting their marginal superiority over you, and they didn't even have to say anything. It's just in their eyes. He says, look to me, and the the eyes said, the eyes were saying, isn't this bloody obvious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the mouth was saying, it's in the avant-garde section. This is quite. I was going to say it's filed under C. Have you tried looking? No, it's avant-garde. Okay. This is. It's not a big record shop. It's not. It's not rough, rough trade east or the old age of How am I to know that it's going to be an avant-garde? Well, and also, also, Mark, I'm going to go further with this. If you, if you, you're running a jazz shop, you would like to sell loads of jazz records. You'd like to sell on at common records. Do you think? In what world, in what planet, do you increase the appeal of Ornette Coleman records by placing them in a in section avant-garde. called avant-garde? It doesn't work at all. 
you know, and that is simply an example of of the snobbery of music fans. And you'll find it the same if you go to Rough Trade East. Oh actually. yeah, making anything it's, it's more not just it, absolutely verified that it is it's German metal indie, or it's you yeah. know it's surf punk, or it's I don't know what. You're not making anything more popular by doing that. No, you're decreasing the the chances of anybody finding the way towards it or appreciating that because you know for most people, and I'm a bit like most people. To buy a jazz record, I've kind of got to feel a little bit, little bit brave. Just you, you do. If somebody then tells you, well, you're feeling not exposed that, in a jazz shop, aren't you? Because you know that everyone's going to have far more knowledge than you. Well, are. it's a bit of that. Although I'm not stupid, and um, but if you feel that way in the jazz section. If somebody says no over there in the avant-garde section, you turn around. And what you expect to see is kind of snow blowing across <laughs> and leaves. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you expect to hear the distant howl of wind and probably wolves go, Ooh! <laughs> oh, come over here. There's no joy to be had the over tundra. here. Yeah. Isn't it really? It is. I think the, the abundance of genres is a problem as well, you know. Back in, back in my day, it was really simple. It was rock, pop, and dance. That was basically soundtracks. That was basically it. Now there's sort of spatula core and boggle, and you know you don't you don't you know what to do with it. You know I don't know where I stand anymore with music. Spatula core was it? Was it? <laughs> spatula core. That's great. And honestly, I've been thinking about that ever since. And the and and this guy, it was just a flicker of his eyes, flicker in his eyes. But it was just registering the fact that I'm a little bit above you. And that's what guys behind record shop counters do. And it used to be at its worst. And I, I don't know if these places still exist. They probably do. Dance music shops in Soho. You know, those kind of specialist places. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they always, did you notice what it was like when you ever, you probably never went in one of those places. But Behind the counter, they were obviously standing on a platform, literally standing on a platform. In order to look down on you? In order to literally look down on you. You know, they were like a DJ booth. I'm in charge here. You're just. We've referenced him a million times on these podcasts, but Jack Black, isn't it? In, In High Fidelity, the Jack Black character in the shop is just so perfectly cast. Well, it's up to you. When he says he doesn't want to sell the Captain Beefheart uh, bootleg, and the guy comes in and says he wants to buy a copy of a Lionel Richie record for his daughter, he says, "Is he? Is she in a coma?" He's unbelievably rude. No, but they don't go. I mean, I never worked with anybody who went that far. But you know, we we did have a very patronising view of uh, of the public. And the, the 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 most the most convincing bit in High Fidelity, because it always strikes me none of the people there have actually worked in a record shop. Is when um, sell the record by putting it on. No, he says, I will now sell three copies of That's the Victor right. Band. And he's absolutely right. And uh, people we can't t- say, This is great. We what used to it? know we could do that all the time. What sort yeah. of things did you sell? You could, if you played the first Montrose album, all right. you always sold four copies. Always, always, always. Because people had never heard it. And it was it was a kind of record that immediately people thought, What is this? Yeah, yeah. And yet he appealed to a loads of people who'd come in to buy a Led Zeppelin record and thought, oh, God, no, I'm going to have this instead. 
Um, you know, just uh, thing, I, can't, I can't remember off the top of my head the, the other things, but just things that had an immediate impact. Beta Band, I'm sure. Yeah, that's that was before, yeah. after my time in record jump. But that's an equivalent, undoubtedly. And uh, and you probably wouldn't have heard it any other way than hearing it in a record shop. So, sorry, that's my little anecdote. Good. I like it. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.